0: We're gathered here to rejoice in the God who saves, and a wonderful song to direct our eyes to him. I'm going to be reading from 1 Samuel, our text for this morning, chapters 9 and 10, so you're welcome to turn there or just to listen as I read. Last week we considered chapter 8 a sad chapter in many ways as Israel turned from God, rejected God, and longed for a human king, as if any human could replace God. As I read chapters 9 and 10, watch the interweaving of Saul, Samuel, and God, and what these three main persons, in, main, main characters, I should say, in this text, what they're doing and what they're not doing. So the triune God is at work in this text, but also watch Samuel and Saul. First Samuel 9, starting at verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bicorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Silesia, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shealim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Look, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to a servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, he is. Look, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, "Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Here it is, who shall restrain my people." Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, "Tell me, where is the house of the seer?" Samuel answered Saul, "I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you. I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them." for they have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of the of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel said to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell your servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you were seeking... That you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, then another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of the prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him... Previously, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken. He did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and by the clan And the clan of that, Matrites, was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Look, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace. I'll start with a question that perhaps is impossible to answer. How many times before you turned to Christ did you reject the gospel as it was presented to you? How many times did you need to hear the truth of salvation in Christ alone by faith before you actually turned in faith to Christ? Sometimes it's a very slow dawning of awareness, isn't it, as you hear? Sometimes it's rather dramatic. But it takes time for us to hear, of course, for the Spirit then to work and to bring us to believe in God. I'm going to talk to you this morning about rejection. And God has been turned aside many times by individuals and even by groups of people. God is very familiar with rejection. And just as I previously said in 1 Samuel 8, the people had made it very clear that they were turning from God as their king and they wanted somebody else. And yet... God's merciful work among the people of Israel continues. That's what I want you to be amazed by this morning. That the same God who has just been rejected by his people continues his work, his merciful work among them going forward. Our God is great, as we've just sung. But we see that greatness within the mundane life of day by day that we live and sometimes it's within that very mundane and yet disappointing life that the mercy and grace of god shine the brightest the future king of israel is introduced at the very beginning of chapter 9 there was a man of course that man originally that I was speaking of is saul's father saul comes from a wealthy family he comes from a family that is established their genealogy is known here so this man Saul's father probably has some influence among his tribe at least and that is helpful to us because this man's wealth is on the run it's in donkeys people didn't always have a bank account in those days, their wealth was stored up often in livestock and some of his wealth has been lost and so Saul is sent to to track it but first we see this introduction of Saul and how is he described this future king is he described as a man whose heart longs for the law is he described as a man who's sacrificially living for others a man who knows how to direct people to God no he's, a, he's described as a good looking man who's tall Those are Saul's distinguishing marks. Oh, and he's from an established family that has money. Remember, what did Israel want? He wanted a king like other nations. God is going to give them that king. And here is how that king is set apart. He's taller than anybody else in the nation. So what is communicated here at the beginning? This is a man who looks like a king. Let's say you buy a desk and you're bold, so you buy an Ikea desk and you get the boxes before you and you lay out all the parts. You want to make sure that everything's there. Of course, if you've bought an Ikea desk, there's no way to tell if everything is there because there's too many pieces but you like to know what's in front of you. You like to see if there are actually directions included with the box. And then you go forward to try to put this 3D puzzle together. And maybe you ask some way, some, at some point along the way, there's something missing. What is missing that I need in order to continue putting this together? Well, as Israel is about to have a human king, here's the parts list. This man is tall. He's probably from an influential family. He's grown up with some wealth, and he's good looking. That's the parts list. The question is, does this parts list actually meet what the nation truly needs? And sadly, Israel has to find out personally, by experience, that this is the wrong list. This is not the kind of king that they need to lead them. But this is what they've decided, and so they're moving forward. Back, I, I, I pointed you last week to Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to reference that again because there are uh, there is an allowance, of course, for a king to rule over the people and for them to have a king like other nations around them. But in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18... God had already told the the Israelites, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, in it, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. See, there's there's a deep heart need that any king of Israel will need, and that is to know God's law, to be shaped by God's law, and essentially to guide his rule according to God's law. You're not going to see that anywhere in Saul's actions. Saul's a confusing man. Be ready to be confused by Saul. But this is what's missing, and it's missing from the very beginning. There's no connection of Saul to the law. Well, you see, just regular life, mundane life happening in verse 3. This is farm life. This is what it means to be managing livestock. You wake up, some place the fence has been breached, and, of course, animals have then escaped on their way to freedom through that, and now somebody has to chase them. And that's Saul's opportunity and responsibility. And so he brings a servant with him, and they start to look for the donkeys. As I said, if you're talking about a wealthy family in those days, part of their wealth at least is going to be wrapped up in the livestock. And so they need to retrieve these animals as they go it's very apparent that they end up going on a longer trip than they expect and they're passing through all this countryside looking for the animals they're unsuccessful to the point where finally Saul says in verse 5 let's go back it's going to get to the point where my father is more concerned about us than he is about the donkeys and if you had to evaluate Saul and his servant which one shows more faith Saul's just worried about the donkeys. And his servant's like, well, actually, there might be one other opportunity here to retrieve them. There's a man of God in this city. And he's a man who is held in honor. And all that he says comes true. I've read through this passage multiple times, listened to it. And this is just the joy of studying God's word. I'm reading this text to you this morning. And as I'm reading it, I get to verse 6. And read this, all that he says comes true. And I did not put this connection, made this connection until I'm reading it to you. So in some ways I want to stop and talk about it as I'm reading the passage. All he says comes true. What has Samuel just said to the nation recently? Don't go this way. You're rejecting God. I I mean, I'd have to think through this more. This is an unfiltered comment because it, I hadn't seen it until just recently. But he's so concerned, and he's trying to warn them, this is what a king's going to do to you. He will take, and he will take, and he will take, and he will take. And eventually, you'll find out the mess that you're in. You'll call to God. He's not going to answer you. He's going to let you suffer your consequences. And here's an unnamed servant saying, let's go seek the man of God because his words are dependable. Oh, if all the nation understood that they'd be in a different spot so thankfully there are still I think people of faith as evidenced here at least people that understand they get it but Saul is not one of them he's just trying to get the donkeys back and so he says well do we have something to give to this man of God if we go to him I have nothing and this servant even comes up with the gift by the way you can bring by any gift you want during the week but I'm not going to be able to help you find your lost items. This is something of the past. It's not something of the present. But think about this. Samuel is such a man that even when it comes to lost livestock, the servants of Israel, or at least one servant of Israel, knows that he's approachable. And what does that say about God as well? God is involved in the details of the lives of his people. It's just a beautiful thing to see here. Well, they go, and they're, 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 they're going to make their way to Samuel the prophet, Samuel the seer. And so as they're on their way, they get pointed that to where he is. There's about to be uh, some sort of feast and sacrifice, and they go and they meet Samuel. Samuel but I want us to realize that even though Saul is turning to Samuel here it's for a pragmatic reason. He's just trying to get the donkeys back. This is not a time where he's intending to join in the worship of God. There's no indication of that. His mind is on the animals. And so yes he is seeking Samuel but that is really just at the advice of his servant. And so far, is there anything that stands out that would say, man, this is this is a good choice. Israel should be looking at Saul as a king. Again, the only distinguishing marks for him, wealth, looks, and height, even as we see him operating in regular life. And I would emphasize, this is just, maybe not a typical day in the life of Saul, but this is fairly normal. This is farm life for him. And we get to, to watch. By verse 15, though, now it's not just Saul being introduced. It's not just he's searching for livestock and, and, and that search leads him to Samuel. Now we start to see behind the curtain what God is intending to do. And really from verse 15 Through a good portion of chapter 10, we see God setting apart his choice, Saul, to be king. This is now what God is doing to set Saul aside for this role. And we get the -the behind-the-scenes look. Again, verse 15, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man, and you shall anoint him. So anointing, being set aside for the task of being prince or leader or king over the Israelites. Samuel is to be the kingmaker. And he's to do that even though he doesn't want this course. Let's remember that too. He, from his heart, yearns for the people of God to be following the true God and he doesn't like this path that is happening and he's the faithful servant of God and he's going to do what God tells him to do. He doesn't want the monarchy to take shape like this though. I love verse 16, the end of it. This is what Saul is going to do for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, that's language that harkens back to the time when Israel was captive in Egypt. Back in Exodus 2, verse 23 and following, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so this is not just some random thing. God is the God who hears the cries of his people. And that's what he's saying even to Samuel here. Their cry has come to me. I have seen my people. Is this a good path they're taking? No. But God has heard the cries of his people. again in the setting, though. Israel has rejected God. Is this how rejection usually works? I don't think so. Uh, Some of you are probably more familiar with rejection in that maybe you have tried to do something that many people are trying to do. And so if you're going to get into, let's say, some field of occupation, you might have to apply it 10 different places and then finally get in somewhere. So you're more familiar with being told no, 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 no. This is very personal, though that, though, that Israel would turn from God, the one who saved them out of Egypt. And maybe in some ways we just get used to God dealing with our rejection. It is not sin in some way a, an acting like we don't bear accountability to God. And so we get used to God being the one who is constantly forgiving. But I don't want us to be used to that. This is a special thing that God is still working with Israel, even knowing that they have in some way turned away from him. Isn't it a joy that God is not like us in this way? How quickly would we turn from somebody who had treated us so rudely and harshly? And again, this is not some random thing, or this is not even just something that God did with Israel Uh, Romans 5 is a glorious passage. Romans 5, 6, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the way of God. He's used to dealing with people who are against him, who are his enemies, who have rejected him in some way or in multiple ways even so much so that in, in, in sending Christ, he was sending Christ to die for those who were his enemies, to die for the ungodly. This is God. He knows how to deal with rejection. And I hope you hear in this a, 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 a cry, a call being formed even this morning that if this has been your stance against God and you have been pushing against him, And you can recall even specific things that you have done that you would want to tell nobody. They're that abhorrent, they're that ugly before God and before others. This is nothing that, that, there's nothing unique in that. God has seen many times over the rejection of sinful people towards him. And yet it's still a mercy of God for him to call out and to work in people to draw them to himself. This is our God. He knows how to deal with rejection. Well, we see again behind the curtain, but then it comes back to Saul and Samuel, and it's an interesting interaction in 1 Samuel 9 as Samuel speaks to Saul and says, here is the man, or God says to him, to Samuel, here's the man of whom I spoke to you he it is who shall restrain my people. And then Saul approaches Samuel and and asks, where's the house of the seer? He doesn't know he's even talking to Samuel. Samuel responds. He deals with the donkeys. Okay, those are gonna be taken care of. But then down in verse 20, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, Saul doesn't know how to deal with this. Samuel, what are you talking about? I'm a nobody. And he references his tribe. Uh, Back in Judges 19 and 20 is really a terrible story of how the Benjaminites were almost, almost totally wiped out. There was a, a terrible sin done. There was judgment that was brought. It's very possible that the tribe of Benjamin is smaller than other tribes at this time and, and perhaps they're still building back their strength. Basically, in Saul's response, what is he saying? I'm a nobody. What are you talking to me like this for? And maybe in that you can see humility. He doesn't have this grand, exalted view of himself. And that would be a positive way of looking at it. That's possible. But I want us to keep an open mind on who, what is Saul like? How is he responding to all of these things that happen? At best, we could say he's confused here and he's humbly saying, who am I that you're talking to me like this? He has this exalted place at the feast that Samuel gives to him. He gets the the set-aside portion of food. Basically, here's a man who had run out of food as he's searching for animals. Now he's being fed. He's given a place to sleep. And then Samuel goes and wakes him up. Hey, get up, up, that I may send you on your way. And, and yet he tells this, okay, servant, you go forward. I'm going to talk to Saul. And in, in chapter 10, he anoints, he pours oil on Samuel's head. This is a setting aside for this task of ruling God's people. It's interesting he had the servant go forward because it's not like Saul could hide the oil after it's been poured on his head. Uh, Maybe today, I think it's even possible today, you can buy little things of oil for anointing. I don't know how much Samuel poured onto Saul. Did he douse him? Was it just a trickle? But he's setting him aside. There probably was at least some kind of aroma that Saul would have had trouble hiding up with his servant around. But the bigger thing is that Samuel is telling Saul, look, you have a special task. And he we see that at the beginning of chapter 10, but then he elaborates on the sign that God is truly anointing him to this task. And look at how long this sign is that God through Samuel gives to Saul. It starts again in verse 2 of chapter 10, when you depart from me today, and he's still rounding that up in verse 6. This is an elaborate sign. He's telling him in detail, this is what's going to happen, and when this happens, then know that God has anointed you to be king over his people. He doesn't need to pull a Gideon here. God is setting it in place for him. This is truly from God. When this happens, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. What might draw our attention is in verse 6 then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And then verse 9, when he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. Again, Saul's a confusing character. Especially when you read this type of verse, you're like, okay, how do you take verse 9? Just if you're reading it first time and you've known the story and you're, are familiar with salvation in the Old Testament. That looks like salvation. At least like it could be, right? In verse 9. God gives him another heart. And yet, later on in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16 verse 14, God's spirit leaves him. How confusing is that? What is going on with Saul? I think we want to start in verse 6 with this. The Spirit comes on him for what purpose? To prophesy. And in prophesying, as he prophesies, he's going to be a different person. You you look down then in, and this is details here, but I I think details matter. When you look down in the next paragraph, is Saul also among the prophets? In fact, this was so unusual, this became a saying. You could compare it to watching your child do something, you go, is that my son? I've never seen him do that before. Well, that's what people used in the days following. This became a saying. Is Saul also among the prophets? Was that my son? It was so unusual. So God makes him into a different person in that he has him prophesy. This is extremely out of character for Saul. In verse nine God gave him another heart. I looked into that word. God turned him into another man, verse six, that word there. And of the 90 some other uses of this verb at no point is it used of another time of salvation and so when the text says here that he's turned into another man when the text says God gave him another heart that terminology is not used of personal individual salvation anywhere else in the Old Testament nowhere else And I think it's safer to say what God did is God turned him into another man in that he made him for a short time into a prophet, and he prophesied. Again, because you look at Saul's life in 1 Samuel, and you just don't see evidence of a man whose heart is drawn to the law, whose heart is truly submissive to the one true God, whose heart is drawn to God. So God says to him, look, here's part of the sign. You're going to prophesy. And Saul, of all people, should know that he is not a prophet. This is a work of God. This word is used of God turning the hearts of the Egyptians in... Psalm 105.25, it's used of God transforming or changing Balaam's curse into a blessing in Deuteronomy 23.5. It's used here of God changing Saul to be a prophet for a time. It was an alarming event that took place even so that people said, who is their father down in verse 12? Basically, who's over all of this? What this? What, what is going on? It's very unusual But it should confirm to Saul. All that being said, what's the purpose? It's to confirm to Saul, you are going to be the king. God has worked. This is God's will for this to happen because the people have rejected him. Saul, you are going to be the king. And this is from God. That's the purpose. And what should that do for Saul? If you had this kind of confirmation from God, what we would hope would that do for you in the role that God has given to you? It should give you confidence. This is truly of God. Interesting. Let's go to the next paragraph then, because we don't see confidence from Saul. Verse 14 Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant when he gets back, Where'd you go? Well, we were looking for the donkeys. And we went to Samuel. Oh, what did Samuel say? Well, he told us where the donkeys were. You know, it's like that time when your, your teenager gets back and said, well, when I was pulling into the driveway, I might have nicked the mailbox on the way into the driveway. And you go out there and look, and your, your, drive, your, your mailbox, which is, you cemented in on a 4x4 post, is drug halfway down the driveway. This is no nick on the car. Saul went to see Samuel. He was anointed as king. He was given a specific prophecy from Samuel to confirm that he was going to be king, and he prophesied. Samuel told us where the donkeys were. And this is the future judge, king of Israel. How's that parts list looking? So, God confirms his decision to Saul. But Saul does not embrace his God-given rule. His confirmation is detailed, it's specific. And at this point, it's very safe to say God is far more engaged than Saul is right? God is continuing his work in Israel. And this king is far too passive. Let's say you need a new bookshelf, and so you hear of a person who makes rather good shelves, and you contact that person, you give the the specs, and Eventually, the day comes when you find out you can go and pick up your bookshelf. And as you get to the workshop, you're walking in and you just notice everywhere there's buckets and buckets of these used bent nails and there's a bunch of stacks of wood that's twisted, it's warped, it's stained, looks totally unfit for anything. And as you're walking through the workshop, you start to see how whoever's working here is working to refashion these nails and to shape up this wood. And by the end, you come to your shelf, which looks amazing. And as you get to that shelf, now your respect for this person that you might have never seen is already well-established because you see that this person has been making a bookshelf out of rabble. This is worthless material, at least for you. This is a master craftsman who knows how to make a shelf. All along throughout human history, God knows how to use the bent nails. He knows how to use the twisted boards and to fashion broken, sinful people into his plan and do what he wants. And he can use whatever material is before him to accomplish his will. One man like this, who refuses to engage by faith, I think, into God's work in his life, is not going to throw off God's plan. One resistant man, one nation of resistant people, these are not going to throw off God's work. God's work continues through all of this. He's still engaged in his people, and he is doing a beautiful thing, although it's taking time to form, it's taking time to fashion. And that is our God. His work is truly incredible. And so even though we see a man who is very disappointing, and that disappointment grows over time, God is not deterred. He will continue his work. God is used to using discarded nails and twisted boards. the end of chapter 10, Now the decision that God has told to Samuel and that Samuel has told to Saul, now that decision becomes public. And in verse 18, you have another reference to Egypt. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Again, a connection to the time when God redeemed his people, when he brought them out of slavery and freed them to be his people. But then you get to verse 19 and how do you take Samuel's words here? But today, you have rejected your God who saves you. It's possible we might read that and kind of read it with distaste. Really Samuel? You need to remind them again. Aren't we kind of moving past this to the point of establishing a king? Why do you have to bring this up once more? I hope that you're encouraged by Samuel. Here's God's servant, serving among a people who is largely turning from God, trying to pull out a king who seems so apathetic, and yet here's a man who is still proclaiming God's word, who is still serving God's people. Was this an easy message to give? Maybe Samuel's used to it by now. He speaks God's word. He sees general apathy on the part of the people, and yet he forges forward. But please be encouraged by this example here because this is how it works. Often, God's message is not something that people want to hear. Hey, we've we've already said that doesn't really matter. Do you really have to say it again? Now, I'm not saying to go out and just be purposefully abrasive to people. But Samuel is personally involved in this, is he not? He's the one who is the kingmaker. He's the one who's anointed Saul. He's the one who's now leading the people to look and find Saul. He's personally involved here. And he's very clear he's not going to compromise. People are gathered together. They're doing something they shouldn't. I'm going to tell them one more time. I would call that faithfulness. Courage as being God's servant. You have to be strategic. You have to be intentional. And by all means, prayerful and humble as you do this kind of thing. But people need to hear the truth. And so you need to gauge your different areas of responsibility, the different circles of people that you walk through. And you need to look at how can I be faithful and when do I give up too much and compromise as God's servant? When do I say the message and point people to the truth? There's wisdom involved in that. There's, there's thought and prayer that needs to go in ahead of time. But here's a man who's telling them once again what they need to hear. Who needs to hear from you this coming week, this coming month, the truth, even though they've made it clear in the past, they don't want to hear it? Be faithful as God has placed you in whatever realm you are. Do not compromise on God's truth. It's not a simple thing to build the kind of reputation where that servant boy said, hey, this man speaks truth. Be a person who speaks truth, even in the face of a nation that is rebelling. As this takes shape, Samuel calls them to present themselves before the Lord and God is working through this selection by lot. And eventually they narrow things down to where, okay, it's been clear God has set aside Saul, the son of Kish. And you can't make this up. I mean, they start looking for this. Where, where is Saul? Okay, we know, finally, we know who's going to be the king. Where is he? He's nowhere to be found. And so they go to God, the rejected king. They say, where's this man? And they find him among the luggage. See, I'm not making up. It's not just that I don't like Saul. God gave him thorough confirmation. This is your role. And he can't step up to it. They run and they get him. Isn't this such a conglomeration of emotions, it seems? They run, they get him. He stands up and he's taller than anybody. And Samuel says, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Here's an interesting statement Saul is the people's choice, and he is God's choice, as the people have chosen. How do those things work together? This is the man whom God has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. And you might look at that one statement, and it's important how you understand it, right? How is Saul different than all the rest of the people? Well, based on the text, if we're to be people of the text, based on the text, how is Saul different? He's tall. And what does the text say? He was taller than all the people, than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And you say, Israel, is that all you wanted? Is this all you care about? Some big guy who can be in the front of the line as you go wipe out the Philistines. And yet if we're starting to look on Israel with maybe a a token of not aggression, but accusation in our voices. How often do we settle for far, far less than God would have us to live, God would have us to do? We just want something flashy. We want want something in the moment that can fill our stomachs or satisfy our desire. God has far loftier plans and things for us to do and to be. And we just want somebody who's tall, That's a message all of us need to hear. Beauty fades. Even as some of us know, height changes over time. I used to be six feet. There are some things that abide. And the confusion continues. All the people shout... Long live the king. They had the infinite God and now they've chosen a mortal man. Samuel tells the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He writes them down, lays it up before the Lord. Samuel continues carrying out his task before God and before man. He is the faithful prophet. But what is missing? I've tried to point you back to Deuteronomy 17 multiple times. What is missing here? Where's Saul's copy? In a time when people don't have personal copies of scripture, the king gets one. This should be a privilege. There's no evidence of it. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Again, God is far more active right now than Saul is. Of course, no nation is completely happy. Some worthless fellows, that harkens back to chapter 2, verse 12, Hophni and Phinehas. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? The irony is... (laughs) In some ways, they're right. I mean, he will provide some relief and win some victory over their enemies. But this man is not the man that he should be. And Saul, to his credit, waits. He doesn't start with a heavy hand, he holds his peace. So God publicly shows his choice of Saul. But the event is far from glorious. It's confusing. If it's encouraging to the Israelites, then they're missing it. But God's merciful work among his people continues. Among his stubborn, obstinate, often faithless and forgetting people, his work continues. As we think about God's work in Saul, Saul, Be encouraged, God is not always as far away as we might think. But neither is disaster. We have, as we end chapter 10, it's like you're playing the game of Jenga outside on a windy day. At some point, the blocks are going to tumble. You can't hold this kind of tension for long. A man is so apathetic to God's revelation, so apathetic to the role that he's been given a nation of needy people and the God who continues to work. This is not a situation that's going to endure very well. But God is not as far away as you might think. Disaster is not as far away as you might have deceived yourself to think. Both of those loom at the end here. As we consider God's merciful work in Israel and how it continues, I want you to see two primary ways that God works in this text. And and the first is through providence, through the ordinary days of existence. God is providentially working, and I think that is shown through some specific terminology. It's a very common word, found. It's used often in the Old Testament. In fact, even in chapters uh, 9 and 10, this word is translated sometimes different ways. But it happens at least 13 times in these two chapters. And I want you to track a little bit of what this word reveals just through the course of some typical days in the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, verse 4, it happens twice. It says regarding the donkeys. They did not find them. And with all their looking, they did not find them. So lost donkeys looking for them. Down in verse eight, this is not brought out. The term is there, but it's used differently. Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. He he found a quarter of a shekel of silver just through the regular course of life. Verse 11, they met or they found young women coming out to draw water. Just as they were going, looking for Samuel, they happened upon some people who directed them to Samuel. Verse 13. As you enter the city, you will find Samuel. So and then it, it happens again in in that verse. They're they're meeting up with him down in verse uh, twenty. Do not set your mind on the donkeys. They have been found just through the course of regular life. Down in verse ten, twice the word occur. Uh, chapter ten, twice the word occurs. You will meet or you will find men by Rachel's tomb. And then verse 3, found again, is happening. Uh, You will meet or find three men. Down in verse 7, when these signs meet you or find you, do what your hand finds to do. Actually, just the found part. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. In other words, do the opportunities that God is giving you to do down in verse 16 of chapter 10. He told us plainly that donkeys had been found. But then I think really the thing that culminates this is down in verse 21. You have all this terminology about donkeys meeting people. But then when the nation is looking, almost like the donkeys who could not be found. Now Saul could not be found. And where did the people turn? They turn to God. They turn to the one who, actually, in many ways, unbeknownst to them, has been working all along through this whole mundane, regular story about donkeys and about a future king. And God is the one who finds for them this man. You say, well, how do you bring that together? Who is the one, in the end, who finds Saul, God? Who is the one who is guiding all the regular, normal, typical events leading up to that, along with some unusual ones of prophesying? It's God. Who's the one who is guiding all the little events of your lives and of my life? It is God all along the way. Even as you make your own choices, God is the one who is working unseen so often to do his plan. As you're looking and as you're finding, God is still working. He's always near, and his merciful work continues. Maybe you're one whose heart, believer or not, has been pushing back against God in some way. I would encourage you, don't miss the mercy of God around you. It is happening. And so often we just continue on our day, oh, look what happened. We don't think about what's really going on. God's merciful work continues. And you might think in that, well, I know what I've done. How could he show mercy? But that's the nature of mercy. It's undeserved. And you might call to mind the wretched things that you've done to push God even further. I'd point you back to Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came for the ungodly. So if you've concluded that you're part of the ungodly, then you're at least partway to accepting biblical truth. And that ungodliness is wretched. It's reprehensible. It's ugly. It thrives in the dark. We don't want to bring it into the light. And because of that, we are tempted then to turn further away, keep walking away from God. He would never be able to handle the wickedness that I've done. But this is how God works. works even with Israel as they rejected and pushed him away. His merciful, providential work continues among them. His merciful, providential work continues within creation today. He's still working. And remember even how he spoke of the cries of his people in chapter 9, verse 16. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. I would encourage you. God is waiting for the cries of more people calling on him when they finally see that there is nothing else in all of earth who can help except this God alone. That's the cry that God treasures. And so if you're believing the lie that what you have done has now separated you forever from God and there's no hope, that is not a word of truth from the throne of God. That is a lie from the realm of Satan. Push against it. Do not believe it. It will lead you to death. God is mercifully at work within his creation. And he loves the cry for help. So see his merciful, providential work within this nation through mundane events of life. But also see his merciful work through his servant. I've already brought this out a little bit. But think of Samuel. Here's Samuel working with Saul. And Samuel is near the end of his life. He's a well-seasoned man. He's seen many different Israelites. He's not fooled as he looks on Saul. And yet he continues to serve. He can probably see what's going to take shape as Saul rules. He's trying to put everything in place that he possibly can. He's telling the nation about what to expect with the kingdom. He's writing things down. He's laying it up before the Lord. He's doing his part even as he looks in the face of an apathetic or probably escapist king. Samuel continues faithfully. Can you relate to that? Are there people around you you're trying you're, you're you're trying whenever you can to hold up biblical truth, you're trying to point them to Christ, you're trying to pull them along with you. And yet we know that we cannot change the heart. That's not our realm. Don't give up as God's faithful servant. Live within that difficult environment. Exude through your very life the love of God. Speak the truth of God. And take comfort knowing that you're not the first and you're not the last who needs to serve in a difficult environment surrounded by rebellious people who are apathetic about biblical truth. And they need a testimony of God's light. So stand up in those moments and point to the light of Christ. God's merciful work continues through this man. And I would encourage you that God's mercy is to be shown through God's people today. You are the representations of Christ. So by faith, perhaps with trembling, embrace those opportunities and show Christ. And may they see through us that our God is a merciful God the God of truth, and the God of hope. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for your merciful work as it continues even today. We are people often prone to spots of rebellion choices that are against you and your ways. And yet, in love, you continue to work in our lives and to bring us to confession and repentance. You amazingly shape us to be more and more like Christ over time. This is truly a privilege to be in Christ, your people who are greatly blessed. May we take encouragement from your providential and direct work within the nation of Israel as we've seen in the text today. May we see your merciful hand at work in the world around us. May we not miss those times where you remind us in gentle, amazing, astounding ways that you are God and that you see us and that you hear us. And please, as we Continue to lay this request before you. Please draw more bent nails and twisted boards to you. You are doing amazing work. We are privileged to be a part of it. But may those who have never turned to you hear clearly this morning that you are the merciful God and they can call upon you It's our privilege to pray before you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.